Yo, what is happening, everybody? This is Austin coming back at you with another episode of the Coffee Break Hems podcast. Today on the podcast, we are going to be talking about um, heat-related emergencies, which is kind of funny. It's been about 100-ish degrees uh, in my neck of the woods uh, for the past week or so, but now that I'm sitting down to record this podcast this week. It is now cold in the 60s and raining, so I'm probably not going to be seeing any heat-related emergencies over the next few days, but it is something that um, is super common in my region. Uh, During the summertime, uh, we see temperatures up in the one-teens pretty regularly uh, as the summer gets going. So we're going to talk about heat-related emergencies for the next 20 minutes or so, starting off with EMS care, and then we'll talk about kind of the emergency room um, response, the ICU uh, care, and then their eventual outcomes. So here we go. All right. So the case that we're going to be looking at is a 74-year-old male. He lives at home alone. Recent history of his wife dying due to cancer. He was found down on the back porch by the neighbor um, after the daughter called them to do a welfare check. When EMS got there, he had a GCS of 7. He was flushed, hot, and dry. He had a blood pressure of 92 over 57, a heart rate of 99, Respiratory rate of 30 with pretty deep, um, some would say Kussmaul-like breathing pattern, and SATs are 90% on room air. Did a finger stick glucose, and it came out at 155. So they package him up. Um, They're getting ready for transport. He does have a small laceration on his forehead. Looks like he maybe sustained a little ground-level fall. Um, And he started to become a little more altered for EMS. He had a hypoxic event, and so the decision was made to intubate this gentleman in the field. Um, He did become fairly hypotensive in route. Blood pressure was augmented with fluids and with some push dose epi at about 10 mics uh, every five or six minutes um, in route to the emergency department. And then they get to the ER, and remember that you and I know that we are talking about heat-related emergencies, but um, as this undifferentiated altered uh, elderly person enters the emergency room, uh, they're not probably just thinking about the environmental emergencies. So when they get to the ED, they've got a bunch of differentials they kind of have to work through. So number one, this is an altered old person, so sepsis should be the first thing on your mind, um, followed by like drugs and toxins. The story is pretty good for that because he did have his wife that recently died due to cancer. Um, and then we have the deep small breathing. He was a little hyperglycemic, so we could have DKA kind of on our mind. And then obviously he's got that lack on his forehead, so we're looking at trauma. But something that should always be on your mind, especially during uh, during winter and summer, um, is that environmental exposure, environmental emergencies. So let's weed through the list of his symptoms first and foremost. Obviously, being at the scene or the bedside makes it a lot easier to get the diagnosis, but skin signs um, would have definitely poked out at me. He was flushed and hot and dry. Uh, that's pretty typical of heat stroke, but very atypical of, of like sepsis and toxins to be dry. Most of them are going to be, you know, maybe flushed, you know, flushed warm and wet, uh, or even if uh, they're completely shunted, then they would be just that pale, cool, moist 
moist, pale, cool, diaphoretic look. So having overtly hot skin is um, pretty atypical of many things outside of uh, outside of fever and environmental issues. The tachypnea um, that we described, you had a respiratory rate like 30 uh, and had deep Kussmaul-like breathing. Uh, it's pretty uncommon in most altered levels to have that deep um, breathing. So I would be thinking environmental emergency, maybe a possibly DKA, uh, or maybe some sort of neurological trauma that was causing that. Uh, and then the core temperature, this is kind of the big one for heat stroke. And that's really the, this is the defining line between heat stroke and heat exhaustion uh, is that core body temperature. And really for me, it's kind of a dividing line for if um, is this a probable infection or is this a probable environmental uh, emergency so the temperature the magical temperature that we're kind of looking for is 104 degrees fahrenheit if it's if they're um, hot but their temperature is less than 104 and they really haven't had any cooling measures done then it's probably like some sort of infection or some sort of toxin that's causing this this uh, hyperthermia but if the temperature is greater than 104 for uh, infections typically just don't do that and so now it's time to start thinking about environmental emergencies especially if you see big temperatures like 109 110 um, that would be really something that the body's not going to do on its own so that that was a body that was cooking um, in order to generate those high core temperatures all right, so uh, if you are in EMS, EMS care is arguably the most important uh, aspect of this, besides really maybe the bystander care. Because remember that like all neurological injuries are going to happen in the first few minutes of this person becoming super hot and their brain's going to start cooking. And so bystanders need to be starting cooling measures immediately, and then EMS needs to follow that up. So first things first, and really should go without saying, we need to be removing them from the heat source, and then we need to immediately initiate cooling. And this is not passive cooling, this is rapid active cooling uh, to try to get that person's body temperature down below 104 degrees Fahrenheit so that way they are not actively dying anymore. So we need to remove all of their clothing. We need to uh, apply ice packs to like their neck, the armpits, the groin, behind the knees, uh, and we need to be... Um, uh, getting them wet and helping to assist with some external evaporative cooling as well. The big thing with this is that if they are able to manage their secretions and they are breathing well on their own, then we'll go ahead and let them continue to do that. But if they are not managing our secre or their secretions, then they need to be intubated. 85% of all heat stroke patients are intubated during some course of their care, and there's no reason why that should not be initiated by EMS, and then cardiac monitoring. These people are going to have eventually some pretty jacked up uh, labs like uh, um, like hyperkalemia and hypocalcemia, and so uh, we may see some cardiac changes with these guys. We're going to be starting two IVs, two large bore IVs, and giving some cooled IV fluids. Um, and then something to note, uh, if they do start shivering, it's not unreasonable to um, to request an order for like Versed or something like that to uh, try to blunt the... Um, uh, blunt that shivering response because we don't want them generating any type of heat. So EMS has done an amazing job at doing all of those things, um, but they get to the emergency department and uh, now the ER is going to take 
over. So uh, this patient, remember, was intubated by EMS in the field. Um, and so now we're looking at kind of the emergency department care, the downstairs care. First is just your ABCs, obviously. So airway, if the patient is abtunded, then we probably need to obtain a definitive airway. This patient, uh, in this case, is already intubated. And then make sure that they are breathing spontaneously if they are not mechanically ventilated. The big thing with circulation is that these patients have a huge risk of hypotension from the dehydration coupled with the inflammatory response, coupled with the fact that they're probably going to start to have some pretty significant myocardial dysfunction because of not only the heat, but the, um, the electrolyte imbalances in their body as well. And so we need to be initiating fluid boluses like 20 ml per kilo fluid boluses, make sure we've got maintenance fluids um, after the bolus, and don't be afraid to start using inotropic medications to, um, to maintain a blood pressure. Uh, larger centers too, I mean, may just go ahead and place this patient on ECMO. Something to never forget when you're talking about um, emergency department care of these uh, of these heat stroke patients is that we want to be making sure that we're checking serial blood sugars. Uh, these patients have um, have been shown to have increased mortalities if they have any incidence of significant hyperglycemia or hypoglycemia, and these patients can do both. Uh, so, uh, which is bizarre that they don't just go one way, but really just doing serial blood sugars and making sure that we're avoiding both hyper and hypoglycemia uh, in these patients is important. And then finally, we're going to be looking at all of the um, uh, all the different cooling measures that these patients can uh, um, uh, can get done in the emergency department. If EMS hasn't done so already, they're going to continue to fully remove all the clothing. Uh, they're going to be getting some sort of core temperature monitoring ability, if that's like a temp foley or, or whatever. Um, uh, they're going to want to be able to to measure some core temps, and then we're going to start actively cooling until their body is at least below 40 degrees Celsius. Some places will go all the way to like 38 degrees Celsius, um, but then you should definitely stop so that way you don't have any type of like overshoot hypothermia or anything like that. Um, but uh, one thing that people will bring up frequently is the use of like antipyretics with, um, uh, with these heat stroke patients, and uh, they're basically totally useless. Uh, we shouldn't be using those in, um, uh, in these patients at all. As far as the cooling measures go, once they're in their emergency department, um, evaporative cooling is probably the, the number one um, most widely used cooling measure for these patients, uh, followed by some cooling blankets. Um, we're not going to be doing any like internal cooling or lavaging. I know some people choose to still do that and it's uh, it's probably um, some very super smart people have a very different opinion than I do on the matter. Uh, uh, but really it's been it's been shown to be no more effective than external cooling so uh, and evaporative cooling and so um, really I would just stick with doing that. So evaporative cooling, uh, uh, super simple. You're just going to get the patient, you know, wet with tepid water and then fan them down with like some high flow fan. It, once they're in the emergency department, you guys can just ask the janitorial staff to supply you with a bunch of fans. Um, and then you're going to continue to replace those ice packs in the neck and the axilla and the, and the groin that EMS had already placed there. But as soon as those start to warm up, um, then we will replace those ice packs with fresh cold ones. 
Um, I, I know that one of my local hospitals uses the Cincinnati Sub-Zero like cold blanket, uh, and those are, um, those are pretty effective tools to use those cooling blankets underneath the patient as well as on top of the patient. Uh, then you've got like the bear hugger and you've got the, um, the uh, blanket trawl as well that, uh, um, that some centers will carry. One super effective method for dropping these people's body temperature down pretty quickly would be the like a cold water immersion. But the problem is, is it's just such a non-feasible thing, right? It's super difficult to set up an ice bath. Um, and it's really difficult if the patient is intubated to be able to continue to manage their airway effectively by dumping them in a, in a bucket of ice. Um, and remember that like 85% of these heat stroke patients are going to be intubated at some point, more than likely either in the field or or initially um, as part of the resuscitation when they get into the emergency department. And if you are a super duper cool emergency department um, and you have got the money and the resources to do so, um, then you can always place these patients on ECMO. But like I said a few minutes ago, um, tend to stay away from those like gastric or rectal or bladder lavages um, just because they're not as effective as evaporative cooling. And um, I would say that most places probably don't recommend it as a primary treatment anymore. All right, so we've got this 74-year-old male. He was found down by EMS. They intubated him and started good cooling measures, got to the ER. They went ahead and continued doing some external evaporative cooling. They started giving him some fluids, um, and he did become progressively more hypotensive until he uh, required a levofed drip. Um, and now he has been uh, at least uh, plateaued in his resuscitation, and he is going upstairs to the ICU. In the ICU, you are going to have to make sure that this person survives five things before they will start to get better and be allowed to uh, uh, start to regain some of their function. So the five things that are going to happen to this patient that they are going to need to overcome is his inevitable rhabdo. He will probably go into DIC. He will probably have some measure of renal failure. He will probably have some sort of ARDS and he may or may not have a cardiogenic shock issue um, uh, if he does indeed have some sort of myocardial dysfunction already. Um, uh, he is in his 70s and lives in America, so um, chances are he's probably had an MI at some point. Uh, but um, if he does have cardiogenic shock, then you will need to overcome that as well. So the first things first is DIC, especially in those first three days. So uh, making sure that if they do have like a lot of thrombocytopenia, then we're doing some like FFP and some platelet replacement uh uh, to make sure that we're overcoming that DIC. Uh, remember with cardiogenic shock is that if a, if a patient has cardiogenic shock, so they have hypotension with the presence of pulmonary congestion, um, then that patient has immediately like an 80% minimum mortality. So the early and aggressive use of inotropes and pressors like dibutamine um, augmented with levofed is going to be really important uh, to try to see if we can get that uh, get that heart bridged back to um, and back to some sort of, some sort of normalcy. And then ARDS. Um, 
making sure that if your patient is intubated that you're treating them appropriately on the ventilator. Uh, remember that an FiO2 of 100% and a PEEPA5 is not cool. Uh, Unless, of course, you are treating a COVID patient. <laughs> uh, but uh, normal, proper ventilator management using the, AR, the ARDSnet strategy with using your tidal volumes about six to eight um, mLs per, per kilo of ideal body weight, uh, your respiratory rates like 18, uh, titrate, um, uh, titrate your respiratory rate to maintain a good entital CO2. Um, and this entital CO2 more than likely is going to be on the low side that you're going to have to maintain because these patients will typically have. Have a little metabolic acidosis that you're going to have to compensate for. Um, and then your PEEP and FiO2, so lower FiO2s and higher PEEPs. So start off at like 40% FiO2 and 8 of PEEP, and then you're going to be titrating up in tandem to maintain oxygen saturation above 90%. The next thing is is uh, is rhabdo. They're they're inevitably going to have rhabdo. Um, watch uh, uh, you know watch their CK levels. Check a myoglobin in the urine. Uh, remember that like not all uh, rhabdo patients have myoglobin present in their urine, but all patients with myoglobin in their urine definitely have rhabdo. So uh, make sure to check your your myoglobins. These patients may or may not um, need to be diuresed. Uh, be, after going into some sort of acute renal failure secondary to their rhabdo. Uh, so make sure that we are maintaining urine outputs greater than like two to three mLs per kilo per hour. Uh, and you may even have to start thinking about doing like Lasix infusions as well. All right, so um, if we can overcome those five things, that rhabdo, DIC, uh, overcome cardiogenic shock, their renal failure, and their ARDS, uh, then uh, we still don't have a great mortality for these patients, about a 63% mortality rate, um, up to about 70% two-year mortality. Uh, and the biggest kind of predictors of these outcomes is going to be a high starting core temperature. If your core temperature is above 106 degrees Fahrenheit when they get there, um, you have a much higher chance of death from uh, from this heat stroke. Um, having a prolonged INR is also a big predictor of mortality. Uh, and then having to use vasoactive therapy within 24 hours of admission. Uh, so if you do have to have initial pressors to get your, your, press or your, your uh, blood pressure up in the field or right initially when you're in the ER, but then they're able to titrate those off within 24 hours, then that is a big booster for your mortality. But prolonged, uh, uh, prolonged need for pressors is obviously an increased or associated with an increase in mortality. And that 63%, let me clarify, is for a non-exertional heat stroke. So there's two different types of heat strokes, right? There's an exertional heat stroke and a non-exertional heat stroke. So you're, and those are pretty self-explanatory. The non-exertional heat stroke is like the older person who sustains a ground level fall on their deck and has a heat stroke because he cannot get up. Um, a, an exertional heat stroke would be somebody who's working outside in the heat all day um, exerting themselves and then they spike a core body temperature above 104 and start to become altered. Uh, so this person who more than likely has a non-exertional heat stroke um, has upwards of about a 63% mortality. It's a little better for exertional heat stroke, a lot, a lot better for exertional heat stroke. If you're exerting yourself outside and you ignore your, your heat uh, um, 
heat exhaustion, flu-like symptoms, and then you uh, you propel yourself into the uh, into having a heat stroke, and so now you're altered and you have a core body temperature above 104. You actually only have about a seven to 15 percent mortality. But here's the big thing with exertional heat strokes is that the most common outcome for exertional heat strokes is not death. The most common outcome is a lasting neurological deficit. Um, so if you have a patient who arrives to the emergency department with a core body temperature that is still greater than 104 degrees, that person has upwards of an 80% chance that they will have a lasting neurological deficit, like some sort of ataxia or some sort of speech problem like dysarthria uh, or impaired memory. They may even have some small behavioral changes or some like spastic or spasticity. Um, uh, there's so many different uh, neurological symptoms that people can present with, but that's really the, the main takeaway from this whole thing is that like in the field, you need to be rapidly cooling these patients because by the time they get to the emergency department, whatever neurological damage that they have is is done. Like it's lasting because they have now been cooking for 20, 30, 40 minutes and their brain is done. Um, and so we need to be cooling them super duper well in the field. Uh, rapid cooling is the most important aspect of their care. Uh, get that temperature below 40 degrees Celsius or about 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Make sure we're treating any airway problems with aggressive airway control. And then if we've got some end organ dysfunction, we're treating that as aggressively as we can. Don't hesitate to support their blood pressure. Um, and then we need to make sure and reverse that, uh, that inevitable DIC and rhabdo that they're going to have. Uh, so this was hopefully a quicker little podcast today. Um, just wanted to put that out there now that it is uh, the middle of May and temperatures are going to start to be really super heating up, uh, especially in those those nice humid um, states. You guys have a lot of heat strokes down there uh, because people don't have the ability to get rid of their heat through evaporation. Um, so uh, if you guys have any questions, let me know at uh, my email, which is kaisercpr at gmail.com. That's K-I-S-E-R-C-P-R at gmail.com. Um, and I will talk with you guys next time.